Good morning and Christian greetings to each one of you. Good to see you here. Good to see a couple of visitors here this morning as well. Welcome and trust you can join in and worship with us this morning. Dating back into the Old Testament times, probably or possibly, I should say, during the time of Isaiah and Jeremiah, there is a fable told of a human body that, in which the parts of it became jealous of the stomach because accusing it of laziness and only caring for itself and taking all the food. The other parts of the body rebelled. The hands refused to raise food to the mouth. The mouth refused to open it to accept the food, and the teeth refused to chew the food. And anyway, they thought this would teach the stomach a lesson about being selfish and, and so forth. Result instead was that the entire body became emaciated and weak. And depending on the account, some of those, the other parts of the body eventually recognized their mistake or changed or else uh, the body died because of this. So this is just a fable. Um, and it's actually included, or a variation of it is included in Aesop's fables from dating back to around that time as well. And it was also referenced by political leaders in the Roman Empire into the New Testament um, at, during the time the New Testament was being written. Both the general idea as well as a number of the actual details recorded in 1 Corinthians 12 seem to at least be linked to this fable that was known at that time and would have been used. Um, so it was taken from pagan sources and uh, pagan and Stoic sources. And so Paul must have been very much aware about this fable and the way that it was being used in the Roman Empire to describe the state in likening the Roman Empire to a human body and its various parts. And it's also something the Corinthian believers would have obviously been very aware of. Many of the Greeks coming out of pagan culture, and they also would have been familiar with it. So I'm going to continue this morning in 1 Corinthians 12. But as I have read and reread and this familiar passage over the last weeks, meditating on it, I am realizing, and I should say, and probably just beginning to realize, that this passage, I believe, is far more profound and significant than I have typically um, recognized or even attributed to it. The word picture that's given of the human body as relates to the body of Christ is certainly something we can readily relate to. Uh, and understand, and after a cursory reading and some few surface thoughts about what it means, we can very quickly move on. And I have certainly been guilty of that. But as I've read this text, I want you to, I'm going to read this chapter, but before I do, I want you to start considering what I consider maybe the most profound truth in this passage. I would say that most of us, and maybe all of us, and myself included, have typically viewed this as an example or an illustration, a figure of speech, to better understand the church. But as I read this, I think it's more than that. Look at verse 28. Paul writes, 
now you are the body of Christ. And as I think about that, it's just, it just grabs me. It's, it's more than, it's not you are like the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. And so this profound reality, you know, it's not a metaphor. It's not an allegory. It's not just an analogy. We are the body of Christ. And, and that's what I want, that's the title of this morning's message. That's what I want to focus on and uh, think about that as we read through this chapter. But then also I want you to be noticing key words um, throughout, words that are repeated and so forth. Um, I invite you to stand and I'm going to read the entire chapter, partly because the last couple of verses tie back to the first part of this chapter, and so I'll read the entire chapter of our text is from 12 to the end. From the English Standard Version, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by, to mute idols, however you are led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but, the, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healings by this one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles, and to another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, an interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and are all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not of the not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, and there may, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. You may be seated. Just a little bit of feedback. What are some words that you heard repeated throughout this, um, this passage of Scripture? I'm, I'm not looking for a specific word. I just want to hear what you heard. What words did you hear again and again? The whole, okay, the whole being one thing, okay. That's right. Okay, composed, all right. All, it's used at least a dozen times. Members, parts, that's used, I think, 17 times throughout this. And the word body, I think there's 19 times that the word body is used. And while, and one, I believe, is about a dozen times or so as well. Um, it's just interesting to think about that because I do think that that tells you a bit about what the emphasis is of a passage like this. The repetitiveness is he's trying to make this point again and again. So looking at this first section, um, the first couple of verses there, you know, in the first four chapters, uh, and I'm referring to chapters, verses 12 and 13 there, the first four chapters of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul emphasized the importance of unity because division was prevalent there in the church and so forth, but division and dissension do not believe among believers, do not belong among believers. In a local church, the Holy Spirit will always bring unity. And while the enemy is constantly trying to find ways to divide believers, uh, I believe that that's something that we can uh, just rely on independently. And so Paul is circling around, in a sense, back to where he started this letter, back to focusing on the importance and the value of unity for which a church is designed, rather than the divisions and schisms that were so familiar there. Paul begins this section by reinforcing the point in that first verse by repeating yet and reversing the same statement. He says, first, one body, many members. Then he restates it, many members, one body. Um, it's an obvious yet important statement, and he's setting the stage and setting basically the uh, context for the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the chapter here. Everyone's familiar with a human body. I mean, that's what we live in. That's what, who we are. And using this kind of a word picture is something that certainly 
the Corinthian believers would have been familiar with because of the fables that I referenced earlier. And so Paul is tapping into something that they could readily relate to and, and, and show them something more about the church and how it's supposed to function. What I find interesting is what does Paul say after making those two initial judgments? Does he say, so it is with the church? No, he says, so it is with Christ. And I believe that that is, I think in my mind, I have always glossed over that and more or less put church there instead of Christ. And it's also interesting that he doesn't say Jesus, but he says Christ, which Christ is Jesus' title, not his name. His title of anointed one or Messiah. And, and so he's saying, in the same way, just as the human body has many members or parts or organs, I'm still one person. And so it is with the anointed one, with Christ, with the Messiah. And so Paul is starting here already to make that direct connection between the body and Christ. The church and Christ are connected, intertwined. They are inseparable. And then he continues in the next verse, um, talking about that baptism. Uh, uh, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Now, the baptism there is not limited to water baptism. And it's also referring to the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is, I think, the only text that some of the, like the Pentecostal movement, would have latched on to this as in differentiating the baptism of the Spirit from that of the water baptism or the, um, from, at the point of salvation. But I, there's certainly no indication here and no indication elsewhere. In fact, I would say strong indication elsewhere that we are filled with the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. It is not something that happens late, at a later point, and this is not a subsequent event uh, at some point in time after conversion, but that believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. All believers are filled with and made to partake of, to drink of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is showing unity, a, a unity, that there's a sameness about this. The nationality and social standing are irrelevant in the kingdom of God. We're all united and part of a single entity, a single body, by and for a single spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it, we are united in Christ. There's another aspect here, and this is not, this is uh, drawing some applications from this text. Um, but the more I read this and the more I thought about this fact that now we are the body of Christ, I believe these verses, starting now here, but even uh, going on down through here, 
the references to members, I believe, is actually pointing to church membership. As you think about this, it talks about members of the body. And I suspect the term members of churches or church membership may have originated from this passage of Scripture. I can't say that with uh, definite. It's easy to think about it in terms of body parts or body organs and body members, but it does seem that it, uh, it certainly applies to the idea of being a part of a local church body as well. A member of a body cannot exist for an extended period of time detached from the body. And that's true physically, and I think it's true spiritually as well. And that is not the way physical organs were designed to function. And neither can believers thrive alone or apart from other believers. Then another aspect of this that often comes up with passages like this is there's questions about whether the body of Christ is referring to a local congregation or if it's the universal church, if you will. Um, all the churches from around the world. And all I can say to that point is that if you're reading this in context, this is part of Paul's letter to a specific local church and uh, at Corinth. So it's quite obvious it does refer to a specific local church. Now, there's certainly principles that are also true in the larger church universal but our focus should be on how it impacts us locally here. Continuing on now, uh, the next paragraph, if you will, uh, verses 14 through 20, Paul just goes into some of this descriptive talk about members of the body and foot and the hand and the ear and the eye and so forth. Um, one of the things that, well, first of all, our human bodies are an incredible combination of diverse systems and organs, and any of which are useless alone and detached from the, uh, from the, from the whole, and detached from being at the right place. One thing that I thought about, thinking about the eye in particular, you know, what if you just encountered an eyeball somewhere? I mean, the, the thing that comes to your mind would be more a monster than a person. And I mean, it, it wouldn't be a person. But I think that that gives us a, maybe a little bit of a picture, too, that when you're detached, that identity is very different. Um, yet, the fierce individualism of today's culture screams that we deserve the life the way we to live life the way that we want. And we don't need anyone else. We know what's best and what we need. And that's what we're being permeated with, but yet Jesus does not that's not the way that Jesus thinks. We are interdependent beings. We need each other. Believers need each other. Satan wants does everything he can to isolate and to separate believers from each other because he knows that the most that there is tremendous power and potential when a group of believers a church works 
as individual members of the body. As, as the group works together, there is incredible power there. You know, but like the human body, yeah, there's a lot of components or members or parts, but it's only when those pieces are combined and actually working together that, that, that a human body actually even exists. You know, a, a detached ear might be um, the most impressive ear there ever was, but if it's unattached to a body, it remains literally worthless. And if it's not attached to a body, literally without the brain, it can't hear anything. And it's just a piece of cartilage. And, and so whether a foot or a hand or an eye or an ear or a stomach or a kidney, it doesn't matter what it is. Each one of those has an important part in a functional body and yet by themselves is, is pretty worthless. Individual members shouldn't and uh, really can't compare themselves with other members of the body because each one is different, each one has a different purpose, yet each one also helps complete the body. Each has been created and designed to fill a designated role within the body. And so we really do need each other. I can't live a fruitful Christian life all by myself. I need others to do that. I need each of you to complement and enhance what I bring to the body. I need others, and others need me as well. I don't just sit back and take from others. I look for needs that I can meet. And being a member of a church is participatory, meaning that it's not a country club membership where I'm simply seeing what benefits I can get out of it, but it's more about what I contribute or what I can bring or what I can do to help others within this body as well. Over the years, I have certainly learned that during those times that I don't feel like I am receiving much from others, it's often those very times that I have not been giving much to others as well. And it feels like there is a correlation between what we give and what we end up receiving. And we should not do it for that reason. At the same time, it's as we give, as we give of ourselves, we will receive blessings. Don't wait to give until you receive. Give first, and then trust God will provide what you will need. And uh, appreciated the devotional this morning by Enos. You know, the whole thing of contentment, yes, it's good. We need to be content with where God has put us. At the same time, we should never be complacent about not improving. And there's a big difference between being satisfied with our place and yet being willing to do our absolute best wherever that is. Um, not for gain, but just simply because we want to. And then he says in verse 18, 
God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And I believe, literally, one thing that is telling us this morning, that none of us in this room, or none of us listening to this this morning, are here by accident. There is a divine appointment and design with where we are and where God has placed us. He has placed each one of us where he has for a specific reason. And my challenge to myself, first of all, but also to each of you, do we really believe that? Do we believe that God has placed us where he has for a reason? And then along with that, do you trust God to not make any mistakes? Because it's very easy to uh, leap to the idea, well, this must not be right, or this can't be right, and assume that God has made a mistake. And then along with that as well, are we, and this ties into the devotional, are we content with what God has done? Can we rest? Can we be at peace with what God has done? and who God has placed here around us. Not complacent, but, but content. Moving on down to the next paragraph, verses 21 to 26. We should never say of one another that we don't need you. I think that lesson is pretty clear and pretty obvious from the text here. Now, I wonder, when is the last time that you really paid any special attention to your big toe? Um, you know, it seems rather insignificant. Did you know that your big toe is probably one of the most critical parts of your anatomy in you being able to maintain your balance and to stand still? a very insignificant member in a lot of ways, but if we no longer have that and we can't keep our balance correctly or can't stand still, we realize what kind of an effect it has on us. Even those members that are more obscure do have a very direct impact on the rest of the body more so than what we may ever fully appreciate or even understand. But there is value there in each and every one of them. Just because they're obscure or just because they're not prominent does not make them any less valuable. Each member, each body part is there for a specific reason. <clears throat> you know, some parts of our human body even, but also of the church, are more visible, more flashy, if you will, more prominent, more obvious than other parts. But that does not mean the prominence or the visibility does not indicate um, significance in any way. Uh, there is value and significance to every single person in the body of Christ. 
So then that comes back to the point that then to challenge or to question or to undermine a fellow member in Christ's body is what? Is literally a challenge to God himself. It's challenging God himself because God places these together and it's his body that we're members of. He is the one that has placed each one of us where he desires. And then God composed or tempered the body in a way that fits his overall purposes and goals. Steel is tempered to add strength um, to steel and to make it more durable. And in a similar way, I believe that God is tempering the body to make it better um, more durable and, and give additional power and strength to it. <clears throat> we do have a responsibility to God as well as to our fellow members to function and to contribute to the overall health of the body by being a healthy member. What I do or don't do has a direct impact on you, and the same is true what you do or don't do has a direct impact on me. We are interconnected and interrelated within the body. A healthy body is completely unified. There isn't division. There isn't dissension. There's not health problems, if you will. But rather, there's a cooperation and a collaboration within the body as each member relates to the other parts. As I understand it, in the human body, when cancer develops, as a well, cancer develops as a result of healthy cells basically rebelling against the rest of the body. It's not that they are unhealthy cells, but they then no longer allow the brain, if you will, to tell those cells what they ought to do. No longer are those cells concerned about the health of the body. They're more interested in advancing their own selfish ambitions that actually end up damaging the overall body. And the purpose behind chemo and radiation treatments is to target and to poison and to kill those renegade healthy cells that are destroying the rest of the body. And I think that, that gives us a good picture of what can happen in the church as well. And a healthy body is going to be, it's unified and it's going to take care of itself. You know, safety matters. We're not going to jump off the roof. I mean, we know we're going to hurt ourselves. Uh, you're not going to stick your hand in a fire. There's, there's things that we do to take care of ourselves when we are a healthy human body. You know, diet matters, exercise matters. There's care for every part. And I believe that the, uh, the healthy church will do the same. It will care for itself. It cares deeply for each and every member. When a leg is broken, when a shoulder is dislocated, or when an infection develops, the entire body is impacted. It's painful. We all feel it. Life doesn't just go on as normal. We adapt, we adjust, we compensate for the injured or hurting member, and we rally to bring healing. 
And then at the same time, we celebrate, we rejoice when something encouraging or positive or exciting is happening. We feel and experience what others are going through. And while I know I've mentioned this before, I'll just say it again, that we feel, well, that share time, I believe, is a very appropriate time and place to express those things, uh, whether exciting or, uh, or tough, you know, or a joyous time, whatever it is, to share those times with each other as members. This feeling and experiencing what others are going through happens when we actively engage and are genuinely interested in what is going on with the other members that God has placed around us, rather than simply focusing on myself, my own interests, and my own ambitions. Paul here is emphasizing to the Corinthian believers that what they do individually has a big impact on the church as a whole. And it requires individual members to surrender to Christ's body in order to maximize the potential of far greater impact to the body than any, you know, than each of the members individually would be able to accomplish. And really, this is another word for that would be synergy. A multiplicative power when a group of believers unites together um, to build God's kingdom. We get to verse 28 here. We are the body of Christ. I don't believe I yet fully comprehend the significance of those six words. We are the body of Christ. The body is composed of individuals fully committed to each other and to Jesus Christ, the head. We, as a group, are the body of Christ. Paul is, is using this to make a strong point here. I, I'm, I believe that there is actually a spiritual or a, you might even say a mystical, reality in those words, in this passage of Scripture. There's a, there's a quality here that goes beyond the physical and really is showing us something. Paul is showing the Corinthian believers, as well as us, the design and intent and the potential of a healthy church. Churches and their members are empowered, and Satan's power is diminished or overcome as a group of believers embrace this reality. And my challenge, certainly for myself, but for all of us, is that let's brace, embrace this unity, this power that comes by being this body in Christ. The last several verses then come back to the spiritual gifts, which is where Paul started with his chapter. He interjected, interjected this whole section on the body in the middle of him talking about these spiritual gifts because I think that he really wanted them to more clearly understand what the church is, the purpose of it, the function of it. There are varied thoughts on the list of spiritual gifts listed in verse 28 and then repeated again in 29 and 30. My first, the first observation that I would have is that the list 
here differs considerably from the list that was given at the beginning of the chapter in verses 8 to 10, um, which, again, to me is an indicator that there is not a single or a comprehensive list of all the gifts. There are many gifts. But it is noteworthy the way that Paul starts this out and that he prioritizes the first three, saying first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. And so what does that mean? There are two primary interpretations of this. And I'm not sure, I don't have a strong feeling on which one is, uh, is fully the one that I would necessarily embrace. I think they're both good explanations. The first is that it is an order of importance. Um, and, and so the apostles are the most, that's the most important gift. Then the prophets, then the teachers, and then the others fall behind that. Um, that may or may not be the case. Second, the second view is that it is more of a uh, chrono uh, chronological type of a sequence. First apostles, they were the ones right after Christ, then the prophets, and then the teachers after that. The apostles established churches. The prophets solidified the theological foundation, and then the teachers built upon that foundation. Um, so that is another possible explanation for that first, second, and third in verse 28. <clears throat> the terms apostles and prophets are not terms that are used much uh, in today's churches for sure. And uh, some rename these as missionaries and pastors. Um, but as I stated in a previous message, I don't believe that any of the spiritual gifts listed in Scripture are obsolete today. But I do believe that God determines which gifts, what gifts are needed where, and not all gifts are present in every congregation. And so it may be that, um, that there's just not as many apostles and prophets today, if you will. <clears throat> And then based on what we, were see, we, what we will be seeing in chapter 14 as we uh, continue studying here through 1 Corinthians, I do believe that the order of the gifts in verse 28 is significant in one other area. And that is, if you look at that list of eight gifts, the last one listed is tongues. And that's the one that the Corinthians were really emphasizing. They would have put that probably at the top of the list. And here Paul is making this list, first, second, and third, lists a number of others, and then concludes with tongues. They were elevating that particular gift disproportionately, so Paul is emphasizing the value and importance of other gifts above tongues. And then the other thing is, in verses 29 and 30, Paul is emphasizing that not everyone has the same gift. Again, tongues would have been emphasized to the point that they would have wanted everyone to have that gift. But he's making it clear that not everyone 
has the same gifts. So this is, was obviously uh, pertinent especially to the church there at Corinth. Verse 31 then concludes, earnestly desire the higher gifts. And um, I may elaborate on that a bit more. And then I will show you a more excellent way, which leads right into chapter 13, known as the love chapter. And that's really what his emphasis is there in relation to the gifts. <clears throat> in conclusion, we are the body of Christ. I challenge you to just write down and think about those words here in the coming week and what that means. We are united in Christ. We need each other. And what we do affects each other. We affect each other. God has placed each one of us right where he wants. So my questions or my challenge to you this morning is how am I contributing to the overall health of the body of Christ? How are my actions building up or tearing down those members that God has placed around me? Do I find myself more concerned about myself or the members of the body of Christ? We are the body of Christ. Let's be healthy members that empowers the church to thrive the way, the way it's designed. Let's stand together for a closing prayer. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for this beautiful passage of Scripture. Thank you for the lessons, the the visuals that it gives in better understanding your church and what you desire for your church, what your design is for the church, and the incredible power that comes as a result of that. I pray that as members of this church, that you would create both an awareness and a desire to be the members that you want us to be, to be members that, that build up and contribute to the health of the body. As we go from here, I just pray that you would remind us of our shortcomings, remind us of, um, of those areas that you are concerned about, that you want us to change, and then Lord, help us to be willing to make those changes as you remind us. We love you. We want to be who you want us to be together as a body. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.